0: Hi everyone. Thank you so much for welcoming me and Joe here today. Um, we're really excited to be here this afternoon to talk about Universal Basic Income, or UBI. And we think it's important to talk about this because UBI is a big idea that has the potential to transform how we as a community of effective altruists, donors, implementers and researchers, think about doing good in the world. So I'll start us off today by introducing UBI and sort of the debate about its effectiveness and discussing how existing evidence from RCTs can help inform how we think about this debate. And then I'll hand it over to Joe, who will talk about some ongoing UBI research and wrap up with some thoughts and questions about what this means for all of us as effective altruists. So if you've kept up with the development economics news over the past year or so, you've probably heard a lot of buzz about UBI. As a reminder, UBI is a cash transfer that is, as the name implies, universal, meaning that all people in a given area receive it. It is not targeted at specific populations and there are no conditions placed on how the money can be used. The transfer is regularly recurring, delivered over the long term and sufficient to meet basic needs. And around the world, there are studies taking place to better understand the various iterations of UBI and its potential impacts. So what explains the widespread interest in UBI today? On the one hand, in many countries like the US, the economy is being rapidly transformed by technology. Automation is getting cheaper and better every day. According to one study by economists at MIT and Boston University, the number of, or each robot that came into the world between 1993 and 2007 reduced the number of available jobs by 5.6. So automation has already displaced and will likely continue to displace workers, especially in certain industries. And this makes UBI a potentially attractive policy option for those who are concerned about the well-being of workers left behind by automation and technology advances. On the other hand, while the world has made large strides in reducing poverty, more than 700 million people still live on less than $1.90 per day. And especially in low and middle income countries where the extreme poor live, UBI is seen as a potential policy option to help bring adults and children up to the poverty line and ensure that their basic needs are met. And in high and low countries alike, there are often concerns about the effectiveness of existing social safety net programs. Um, People wonder if current programs are as effective as they could be. They might uh, stigmatize recipients. They might be ineffectively delivered. And With the proliferation of the gig economy and alternative work arrangements employer-based approaches to social welfare like many of those that we have in place today may not be suitable going forward like any potentially disruptive new approach of course there are supporters and detractors of UBI supporters argue that UBI might be more efficient than existing social programs that its unconditional nature offers recipients flexibility and autonomy and that new technology makes it more feasible than ever to distribute basic income transfers. On the other hand, detractors raise concerns about UBI simply being too costly to be a reasonable solution. And they also raise concerns about how unconditional cash might be used by recipients. And of course, despite new technology, the infrastructure to receive payments may not exist in all contexts, especially those where the most poor live. So there are valid points on both sides of this debate. How can we as effective altruists decide where to put our weight as a community and what more do we need to know? So let's look at some existing evidence. First, on the concern that receiving cash with no conditions attached might lead to a reduction in work. And on average, there is evidence that that is not the case. What about concerns that cash given with few or no strings attached will be squandered? In Kenya, researchers tested a program implemented by GiveDirectly, which transferred money in a lump sum to poor households, and they found that it led to increases in both economic and non-economic well-being and did not lead to increases in spending on temptation goods like alcohol or tobacco. What's important to note is that these outcomes were measured less than a year after the transfer was given. And if we're trying to understand cash transfers as a way to reduce poverty, and if we're trying to think about them as a way to inform our Opinions about UBI, we should probably consider the longer term effects. So, we have some research on that as well. Researchers in Uganda and Sri Lanka have found that unsupervised cash grants distributed in sort of a business setting had positive impacts on business investment, profits, and household income after four or five years. But I just mentioned that those were given in a business setting. In Uganda, the grants were given to groups of young people who had submitted business plans. And in Sri Lanka, grants were given to micro-enterprise owners. And if we want to understand the implications of cash transfer evidence for UBI, we might want to think about cash without this framing or context attached to it. So to shed some light on that question, we can turn back to the study that researchers did of Give Directly's program in Kenya. Um, the researchers, Johannes Haushofer and Jeremy Shapiro, recently released longer-term results from that cash transfer, and you might have heard, seen a lot of blogs on the internet, a lot of tweets that have been talking about these results. They've generated a lot of discussion. And overall, the results were largely ambiguous, mostly due to some methodology challenges of the kind that plague many research studies. Um, this includes differential attrition rates between the households who did receive transfers and who didn't. Um, And some others that I'm happy to talk about in office hours tomorrow if you're interested. Um, Even though the results were pretty ambiguous, there's still an important input into the broader evidence landscape around cash transfers and UBI. And luckily, GiveDirectly is doing many other RCTs and many other studies whose results will continue to inform this discussion. So when GiveDirectly and the researchers started the study, they designed the evaluation to answer some really important policy questions they assigned households to three different groups, and that allowed them to figure out what happens to people who receive cash, people whose neighbors receive cash, and people whose communities are not exposed to cash at all. And after the, looking at the three-year survey results, the researchers found that most of those positive impacts that I mentioned after nine months had disappeared. Households who had received the cash transfers did have more assets but the impacts on consumption, investment, and happiness were no longer apparent. And there's also some suggestive evidence that households whose neighbors received cash, but who didn't receive cash themselves, experienced negative spillover effects. But again, this this evidence is subject to some methodological questions, and we'll want to have more research on this question in the future. And Joe is going to tell you about some of the efforts that are currently ongoing to get more evidence on these questions in a little bit. But before he does, I want to return to one of the motivations behind UBI, which is reducing poverty. We're not yet sure if basic income will lead to a sustainable increase in economic or non-economic well-being of the households living in extreme poverty. But while we wait for results, there is already evidence on one approach, which is targeted to households living on less than $1.90 a day, that can sustainably improve livelihoods. It's called the graduation approach and it was initially designed and tested by BRAC which is an NGO in Bangladesh. At its heart, the graduation approach gives a transfer of a productive asset which is meant to be the core of a small business and it also includes other complementary services including coaching and consumption support usually in the form of cash transfers. This is an actively managed program in which households receive two years of support. JPAL affiliated researchers have evaluated the program in Bangladesh and in six other countries around the world and found that overall the program had positive impacts on most measures of economic and non-economic well-being, both when the program ended and a year later after all the program support had ended. And in two sites where it's been tested four years later, so seven years after the asset was transferred originally, there's evidence that consumption, income, assets, and psychosocial well-being all continue to improve which suggests that the changes caused by this approach have lasting power. Obviously, a program that involves all of these components is more expensive and more hands-on than delivering cash alone. So researchers and implementers alike are really interested in figuring out whether it can be delivered in a less intensive version um, or with fewer components. And in Ghana, researchers tested just the asset transfer alone, And in Uganda, researchers tested a cash transfer that was roughly equal to the cost of delivering a sort of streamlined version of this program. And in both cases, they found that this sort of capital infusion alone did not have the same positive effects on consumption, investment, or asset ownership. So there seems to be something about the full package of the program that impacts households differently than capital alone can. So what does this mean going back to the question of basic income? One interpretation is that households who are living in extreme poverty in lower and middle income countries face a number of pervasive market failures like limited access to capital, limited information, and low trust in market institutions. The full package of graduation seems to be able to mitigate some of these market failures in a way that cash alone may not be able to. So in these contexts, we still need more evidence on whether cash transfers that are sufficiently large or delivered in sufficiently long duration can overcome some of these barriers that existing evidence that I just mentioned have not been able to. And it also raises interesting questions about cash transfers in high-income countries like the U.S. Here, the market failures that I just mentioned are likely to be less pervasive and less complex than they are in the countries where we're trying to reduce extreme poverty. But, of course, we still need more research across contexts to understand what impacts something like a UBI will have on the household to receive it. Um, with that, I will hand it over to Joe to talk about some of that work.
1: All right. Joe Houston, originally from San Antonio, is the CFO at Directly a nonprofit which is devoted exclusively to delivering unconditional cash transfers to the extreme poor. Prior to heading GiveDirectly's finance function, he spent three years managing their operations in Kenya and Uganda, where he led the launch of GiveDirectly's 21,000-person experimental evaluation of universal basic income in that country. Previously, he worked at U.S. asset management firm Bridgewater Associates and earned a B.A. in economics from Dartmouth College. Please welcome Joe Houston.
2: Uh, I'll start with saying that I'm really glad to be here. I originally found Give directly through the effective altruism community, and so conversations like these are very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I also know that there's a bunch of different sort of topics to dig into, UBI in the developed world, uh, the three-year results uh, from Kenya, and so I'll try to keep it brief so we have time for a conversation, uh, but we'll see how well I keep the promise. and so a kind of core piece to start out with when we're thinking about how would a universal basic income be different from some of the other things we already know about cash transfers gets into what's unique about a universal basic income, that particular structure of cash transfer. Uh, Well, it's a a few things. First, it's universal. And so whole communities are receiving the cash transfer relative to targeting specific income levels or specific levels of vulnerability. Um, What that also means is you have a lot of variation in the types of recipients. It's not just business owners or people in extreme poverty, but you have some variation in terms of just whatever the communities look like. Uh, the second thing is it's a particular amount, it's basic, it's sufficient to cover basic needs, um, and so that also sort of differs from some of what we already know about cash, from other sort of cash transfer studies, which might be smaller or sort of big one-time capital grants, um, it's a particular size of cash transfer. And the third thing is that it's an income. It should be something you can rely on for your entire life to sort of provide a permanent cash floor, so that you're always up to a certain standard of living because you're receiving a cash transfer equal to the cost of that standard of living. And so, relative to cash transfer programs that are one-time grants, uh, like what uh, Householder and Shapiro studied, or targeted towards a particular life stage, a pension, or support for people who have kids in secondary school, the idea behind a universal basic income should be something that sort of follows you for your entire life and provides long-term cash support so what do we know about that type of cash transfer well you know in general from what sam told you is that there's a lot of studies of cash transfers broadly literally over a hundred cash studies on cash transfers all over the world There are a handful of studies that get grouped in specifically about universal basic income. In the 60s and 70s, there was a wave of experiments in the US and Canada that tested a variant of a universal basic income called a negative income tax. Uh, from those, they typically weren't universal. They were targeted towards the poor. The experiments also weren't universal because there was sort of a lottery-like system, choosing people randomly to participate in the study, so you didn't get those sort of community level effects. Um, they were large, and so they were basic, usually, that they provided a meaningful level of support. Um, but they also weren't typically long term, usually sort of a few years or so. What you saw from those studies was similar to what you see in a lot of the cash studies. First, people got money, and so they were mechanically less poor. And then you saw that flow through to sort of broad-based improvements you saw education and educational attainment increase Uh, in canada you saw hospitalization rates fall pretty markedly um, one thing that's different from the developed world studies that d- doesn't show up in the sort of developing world studies is you did see modest reductions in work effort. Uh, but where those showed up, they were showing up in populations that you might be more okay with working less. They showed up in teenagers who worked less and went to school more and young mothers just after giving birth. And so you might sort of be okay with those populations working a little bit less. Otherwise, there's a handful of studies in Namibia and uh, Madhya Pradesh in India that looked at universal, these universal cash transfers. But uh, in Namibia, it wasn't a randomized control trial and didn't last for very long, only a couple of years. And in India, where they did use that sort of experimental approach, it similarly didn't last all that long. Um, then... Recently, as you guys have probably seen in the news, there's been an explosion of studies basically all over the world. Uh Give Directly has launched one in Kenya, uh, there's one in Finland, there is one in uh the sort of Netherlands. There's been demonstration projects like this one in Germany called My Basic Income. Um, and there's one coming up in Stockton, California as well. And then there's been two sort of larger randomized control trials that are coming on board. Uh, first in, in Ontario, uh done by the sort of uh provincial government there, and uh by Y, y Combinator in California. Uh Because these studies are expensive, researchers have typically made sort of cost-benefit calculations to prioritize what they're studying. And so almost none of these have been universal in the sense of looking at whole communities. Uh, The Y Combinator one isn't looking at whole communities, but they are looking at some income variation. And so they're sort of doing their sort of best to balance those types of things. And then typically, they haven't gone that far out in terms of long term, which might sort of give you a question about whether that matters or not in interpreting these studies. GiveDirectly sort of took the approach of trying to design a study that would complement this body of research, as well as the body of research about cash transfers broadly. And so the study is randomized at the village level. And so whole communities will be treated differently, with about 44 villages receiving 12 years of monthly payments of about $23, sized to sort of beat, meet the poverty line in rural Kenya. That group of villages will be compared against villages receiving two years of worth, worth of basic income payments, and a group of villages receiving one-time cash of about $500 per adults. That's roughly equal to the sum of those two years' worth of payments. And then all three of those groups will be compared to a control group the research is being led by development economists like Abhijit Banerjee who founded J-PAL and Todd Tsuri, who is also a director at J-PAL as well as uh Alan Krueger who is the former chair of the Council of Economic Advisers under President Obama to sort of bridge the kind of policy worlds uh, across the developing and developed world um and the sort of actual research surveying itself is being done by Innovations for Poverty Action and we should have results out early next year which is actually when we'll have a sort of explosion of results out from GiveDirectly Canada and Finland as well uh with this type of study you want to sort of look at a broad set of outcome variables and so we're looking at both individual level outcome variables in terms of how to earnings or spending or assets occupations and time use uh, gender relations and risk taking sort of at the individual level how do those things evolve we're also looking at community level effects because there's something unique about this type of cash transfer that everyone in society or at least most of the people you're seeing day to day are also receiving that cash transfer and so we're looking at things like community level economic effects access to health or education or water facilities uh, how things like community or political engagement evolve as well as how crime levels change and then we'll look at both of those types of things based off of the differences in the cash transfers, how it varies between the 12-year group of cash uh, of villages and the two-year group, which should help inform how we should think about the other studies that are relatively shorter term, as well as the structure, how the cash grants achieve different goals or different outcomes versus the sort of re- recurring stream payments. And then, because it's universal, we have a rich set of data of different types of people receiving a cash transfer, and then seeing if they spend it differently. So we'll get to see how how do different starting income groups spend cash differently? How do different age groups or, gender, or sort of you know genders spend cash differently? Which should help inform broader policy questions beyond just a UBI. And so how should the effective altruist community think about this? And I'll apologize. The slides got merged and the formatting got a bit weird. Um, I think there's a few different types of questions the community should answer. The first one is, what do we think the bet is in terms of the direct impact of these cash transfers? And for this, we have a rich data of other types of cash transfers from literally all over the world, where if you get cash to people who don't have it, uh, they are immediately a little bit less poor because they have cash, and then you start to see that flow through into broader well-being things, things like increased consumption or increased assets and earnings. Um, you also see it show up in more uh, indirect things like uh, stress or psychological well-being. In Malawi, you saw uh, women whose families receive small recurring payments get pregnant later, marry later, and have lower rates of HIV because they had a little bit more security in society. And so part of the bet on effective altruism is a bet on how it'll differ from other types of Cash transfers, uh, which we can maybe dig into in the uh, Q and A. The second bet for the community is about what the sort of broader policy impact of this type of study will be, and this applies to any of the I think it's now twelve studies GiveDirectly is doing. And so to give you one example of what the sort of policy potential of the universal basic income study, this is taken from an estimate by the government of India, where they looked at how sort of modeling out how if they replaced existing subsidy programs that they maintain with a modest universal basic income, a cash support provided essentially universally, what that would do to poverty in India. And what they estimated is that it would take it from about 22% to 0.45% literally bringing over 100 million people out of poverty basically immediately. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we should do. There's an opportunity cost of that type of spending. There might be other effects of the cash transfer that are worth studying. Um, But it gives you a sense of the potential of scale, of the sort of policy implications of these type, this types of research beyond the direct impact of the 21,000 people who are receiving cash from GiveDirectly. The third, I think, bet or question for the effective altruism community is a more foundational one. Um, and I think for that to start with, it's useful looking at the process that I think we mostly apply, at least for effective altruism, to help uh, existing poor people today, where it looks like choosing a set of outcomes that we think are important, maybe it's earnings or health or sort of how long your life is or something like that. Choosing goods and services that we think would improve those outcomes, whether it's a graduation program or a deworming pill or a goat, and then choosing providers who we think can deliver those goods and services as best they can. And I think a lot of what the community is focused on is doing this process better than how aid and development had traditionally done it before. What I think is helpful about cash transfers is they pose a more foundational question of who should make these choices what types of outcomes are important, whether it's uh, how you sort of value earnings or not getting rained on or being a little bit extra healthy, how you sort of value improvements in the lives of your children. Um, the sort of existing status quo is donors and funders start with a pool of money and almost by virtue of that, they become the choosers of these next three things. But cash transfers literally puts the budget in charge of the people we're trying to help and let's make them make those choices. Uh, I think that sort of switch of power is important in part just because of practical reasons. There's a kind of tale of two track records where the poor have literally over 100 studies backing up the quality of their decision-making when they sort of control the budget. And then the sort of funders, implementers have whatever you think about the last 50 years of sort of d- development history. Um, I think the second one is that it's a genuinely tricky problem to figure out what types of outcomes matter. In part, people are very, very different. We see give directly recipients by a sort of an incredible diverse array of things, whether it's solar panels or livestock or roofs. We saw someone start a band. There's an incredible diversity just in humans. And that's amplified by the fact that most of the decision making is done by people in San Francisco or New York or DC or London. And it's on behalf of people who are living in places like rural Western Kenya. And I think do- doing that type of calculation, which we can try to do better as effective altruists, is inherently very, very difficult, which is not to say that the entire sort of portfolio should shift towards recipient chosen or recipient decided, but existing portfolios are extremely skewed. Basically, any way you cut it, whether you look at humanitarian aid or institutional aid given by governments or U.S. international charitable giving, basically the whole pots of money meant to help the poor are decided by the rich which is a sort of unintuitive result given what we sort of talked about before. And so I think one of the most helpful things that cash transfers can do with UBI being an example of that is sort of force the effective altruism community to answer that more foundational question of who should decide which outcomes matter and what types of goods and services best achieve those outcomes. Thank you.
1: All right. Great job, guys! A few minutes for questions, and of course, the app, the website. Go ahead and submit. Um, maybe just to start off with a couple of things that I could use a little help in, kind of just filling in my understanding. Negative spillovers uh, when when some people in the village get money and others don't. Like, what does that look like? I don't have an intuition for you know wh- how does somebody's life get worse in that situation.
0: Yeah. So. Um the researchers have done a little bit of work to try to understand what this means. Uh, there's one paper that they've released which finds that there might be some negative implications on people's well-being. So people might feel more stressed or depressed if their neighbor is receiving cash and they aren't. Um, in the 2018 paper, which is the three-year results that I mentioned, uh, the researchers posit that households who didn't receive cash were selling off assets, um, and so they were... See, they owned fewer assets, and then the households who did receive cash, as I mentioned, had more assets at the end. so um, feel free to add joe, but that 's
2: yeah i think uh, I think the, sort of the three year study is one that 's genuinely hard to interpret that there's the, because of the sort of methodological things which we can dig into it 's a sort of tricky study to synthesize and know what to do about, which is part of why. In 2014, we launched a study specifically geared towards answering this question in a high quality way, the question of how do non-recipients of cash get impacted by, recipient, by being near recipients of cash. Um, and so that we randomized the concentration of cash transfer delivered in different regions. So you can sort of really sort of highlight how people are affected and that'll have results out uh, something like August or September this year. Um, I think the other question for the effective altruism community is how those results uh, those results in part inform research design about how you should sort of approach individually randomized studies where people are very close. Um, for Give Directly's programming, we've moved very, very far away from choosing out individuals from communities. In general, we've moved much more towards enrolling almost everyone. That's literally the case for the UVI study, but even for our sort of day to day programming, we're moving much more towards saturating villages. And so it's a little bit harder to know uh, without seeing that other study, which will look across villages as well, um, how how to sort of draw the right conclusions from that sort of three-year study uh,
1: for what we do today. Another just kind of clarification question. When you mentioned the graduation program and the concept of asset transfer, I'm picturing like a cow. I mean, is that kind of the, the right image for me to have in mind?
0: Yeah, so the graduation program is always tailored to whatever context that it's, where it's being implemented. Usually it's livestock, but it can also be sort of supplies to open up a small shop and sell barrettes or makeup or cigarettes, whatever makes sense for the community.
1: Cool. Questions coming in. Um, one, just about the challenges of running a study that 's going to go on for twelve years, things are going to change in the world around you i mean it 's always hard to hold things constant, but in that span of time, it gets even more difficult. How do you think about those challenges
2: yeah it 's tricky you have to Guess what you think your follow-up call center will cost in 2029 or whatever. (laughs) Uh, Figure out how to manage the cash between Kenyan banks um, and U.S. banks to sort of maintain a a sort of standard uh, payment across those 12 years. Think about how to increase it with inflation. It's a bunch of really hard questions that we were tried to be pretty paranoid about in terms of playing out different scenarios. If GiveDirectly got shut down in Kenya for whatever reason, could we continue payments if we wanted to? Things like that. Um, And so it it had a bunch of different specific answers to those little questions, but it it required a lot of, a a decent amount of work. The nice thing is, once you get past this hurdle, you know we've now enrolled the twenty-one thousand people. It's a little bit more steady state. The picture looks like once a month we press send on payments and people receive text messages, and then once every few months we have our call center call them. And so that's a much sort of lighter run rate engagement that we have to keep up for the next you know decade or so. Um, and so that piece of it is a lot easier than the initial lift to get all those people enrolled.
1: We're a little bit over time already, so this will have to be the last question, but. When you think about the trade-offs between a negative income tax and a universal basic income, one person is asking, you know, why give the universal basic income to everyone, those that don't need it? It seems wasteful. How about the universal, or not the universal, how about the non-universal negative income tax as an alternative?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I should note is you can achieve pretty similar distributions of incomes, post-taxes and post-transfers, with either a negative income tax or a UBI, because with a UBI, if you give Bill Gates his $12,000 a year, you end up taxing it back. And so you can end up with the same distributions for both settings. Um, I think uh, the trade-offs become in part political what's sort of more palatable, where in one case it's easier to say, let's get cash for the poor, while in another case it might be easier to sort of get people on board with a a universal support that's, you know, everyone's dividend is part of being society. Um, Other people also argue, which I'm looking forward to kind of seeing, that there's something helpful about the cash support not being universal, so that it's not stigmatizing, that it's not just the dole for the poor, or um, you know, if it's less that and more just a sort of universal floor for everybody, you might think that in part politically, it's easier to maintain, but also maybe it has different effects that people don't view it as because I'm poor, I get this support, but because I'm part of society, I don't deserve to starve. And that may sort of have different types of effects in terms of how it's spent or maybe that it's spent more communally. Um, And so I think those are things we'll try to test.
1: Cool. Unfortunately, we are out of time. We do have a couple of announcements coming up, but first, how about another round of applause for Sam Carter and Joe Houston. Thank you very much, guys.